Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Today, we are joined with Lauren Ray, and we're going to talk about her book, Love, Wine, and Other Highs, a kind of memoir. So thank you so much, Lauren, for being a part of the Feminist Book Club podcast. I know for me, desirability is a theme that kind of popped up a lot when reading the book, and I kind of went back and forth seeing the difference between like desirability through the eyes of men projecting it onto women yeah. and ways in which you found things desirable. I definitely want to spend our time talking about that. So my first question for you is one of the first recollections you wrote about was the relationship with your hair. Yeah. What are your thoughts about the role that Black women's hair plays in desirability, both in how other people see us and how we see ourselves? I think this one is a really difficult question for me because I think even today is something that I struggle with in terms of like how how attractive I feel with what hairstyles I have on my hair. Like this week I'm home and I couldn't get an appointment to get my braids in and I'm just like, oh my God, this is like the worst week of my life, which I shouldn't ever think like that. I should be like, no, I can do so many different things with my hair while it's out, while it's not in my braids. But I think I still tie a lot of my self-worth to how well my hair is done when it's done, which is low-key problematic. <laughs> but it's something I've always, like, even from, from when I was younger, I remember there was one time when I was a kid and my mom left me with the hairdresser and they asked me what I wanted. And I, I said, like, all back, thinking that it was going to be a single plait. And then she did it, like, all back. And I was, because I have such a big thing about my ears, I was like, oh my God, my whole face and my whole ear is on display. And I couldn't separate how much I hated my hair from my self-worth at the time and I must have been like 11. So I don't know, I feel like it's a really heavy topic. I definitely understand and that's like one of the biggest reasons why I got dreadlocks. They look dope by the way. I just want to wake up and like have it look like quote-unquote presentable but I know my dad was just like oh yeah like you have dreadlocks you'll never be able to get a job and I'm like well I've been Uh, getting jobs. It's 2022, so, yeah, it's like, honey. You're right. <laughs> and it's like so tied to how we feel that we're presentable. Mm-hmm. And like you said, that self-worth to mm-hmm. our hair. But it's definitely something like we're all unlearning. Even like natural hair, there's a lot of judgment too. I know. I think it's also interesting you mentioned the work thing because I remember I used to be like terrified to go to a job interview. If I had my braids in, I would literally be like, I'm, I know I'm not getting this job. I think it's a lot cooler now that people care a little bit less about what your hair looks like. But growing up around that and like not being able to have like prominent black hairstyles for fear of like not getting jobs or not being taken seriously. It's something that we definitely were like struggling through growing up. And I'm happy that it's lessened. The whole working from home thing really helped me. I was just at home, like in my hair masks, like (laughs) living my best life. But whenever I was like in, in work, I was always conscious of it which is really sad. Yeah, because that takes up a lot of mental energy for us to, if we're focusing on like how people are perceiving us, then we won't be able to do a good job. So I also wanted to talk about kind of going along the lines of that 
impossibility that we feel with around our hair and trying to be presentable, but trying to be ourselves. Early on, you mentioned in the book, the impossible line that women have to walk between this sexual prowess energy, but also seeming virginal, being ourselves versus like being perceived as presentable, palatable. What Mm -hmm. role do you believe that dichotomy plays in desirability? And which one do you think is more desirable, air quotes, nowadays? To be honest, for me, when I wrote that, I was like, I just want to like shove all the rules out the window because from a very young age, I was told like, if you do X, Y, and Z, then you're going to be a whore. And I got labeled very, very young. So because of those labels that were stuck to me, I was kind of like, well, I don't actually give a fuck anymore. Like, I'm just going to do whatever the fuck I want. And that for me is desirable, but I don't know how that presents to the people that I attract. Like, for example, I think I mentioned in the book that one of my friends called me a hedonist because I was just able to separate sex from like serious relationships and not feel so tied to sexual connections as much. And I was like, well, no, I don't think that regards me as a hedonist. I don't think that we should be forced to live by rules that other people have put on us. Like just live your best life. You want to, you want to get digged down in Dallas to get digged down in Dallas. Like, you know, (laughs) for me, I don't know what I would be regarded as desirable because I just don't give a fuck. (laughs) It's terrible. My friends are like, you should like care a little bit what people think about. I'm like, no, I don't. I really don't. I wish I could. I'm going to start being more self-aware about these things, but in terms of like what other people would regard as desirable for me, I don't know. It's really interesting that the headness label is considered a bad thing because like, just to be frank, life kind of sucks. Like yeah. we're living Listen, on a planet in... that's trying to kill us off. Like why right? can't be in search of like pleasure where we can get it? Capitalism has told us that doing things because you like them is a bad thing because you mm. always need to be productive and producing and it's No, like, I just want to be out here living my best life. And you should. When I moved to Berlin, because I've lived in Germany now for like three, four years. When I moved to Berlin and I saw how carefree everyone was, I was like, why did I ever let labels define me? Like, I was doing something I enjoyed. I was like dating and having fun and whatever. There was no, for me anyways, there was no badness around it. Like, I was just having a good time. And then it was other people's projections that made me feel bad about myself. But when I moved to Berlin and I met other people that were, I'm, I'm, I'm a basically a baby virgin in this game, but like, they were just so open with it. And I really, really respected that. It made me want to be more open about sex and like read more things about sex and learn more things in about desirability and uh, things like that. I wish everybody could go to Berlin for a year and then come back and be like, oh, you know what? Fuck it. Nothing matters anymore. <laughs> like, literally nothing matters. You're so right because I feel like people in general just need to start living more for themselves and not letting other people's projections define us. This conversation also makes me think of the sex positive movement of women claiming their sexuality for themselves. I used to question objectification like that. I'm presenting myself as a sex object because I want to. Mm. And if that was really a form of empowerment, but the way you framed it in your book, it totally made sense to me. So what role do you see the embracing sluttery in how women express their desire? I fucking love it. I want to be singing and swinging Lil' Kim lyrics and make the Stallion lyrics everywhere I go because those representations in the media have definitely helped me view sex in a completely different way. Like, even if I wasn't having it, I'm open to talking about it because why should I care about the stigmas that come with it? 
in writing it, it was a really difficult process because I was going back in my past when I was younger and I wasn't even having sex, but being labeled and thinking, if I'm going to get labeled for it, then I might as well actually enjoy, if I'm going to do it, like enjoy doing it, you know, like have have those experiences and kind of figure stuff out for myself. In the same way, I self-deprecate a lot. And most of my book is self-deprecation. The jokes that come from that also come in the sex side of things. Um, hopefully tastefully, hopefully not like I have nothing else to talk about, but I think it's important to, to talk about these kind of things in a more humorous way as well. It doesn't always have to be a serious topic. I definitely agree. And I've been reading a lot of books that have been framing sex and sexual exploration in such a negative and heavy and traumatic way. So it's really refreshing to be like, some of the things that happened in the past were bad and you learned a lot of lessons from, but overall just tone of it just being fun and light because that's what sexual exploration should be. Mm. It shouldn't be like, oh, I feel so virginal. Let me do all this dry, heavy research on like how to have sex better. It should be fun and enjoyable and pleasurable. And that was definitely a tone of your writing. I think that came from reading Slash Ever by an ex-vice writer. Um, she was so open about it. I was like, oh my God, I want to be that open. I want to be able to talk about shit that I've been through in the same kind of way, but also make it kind of comical. So she's a big inspiration for me. I actually looked into that article and I definitely agree and love the tone that she took. So in the book you wrote, I adore attention and adoration purely so I can be repulsed by it. And this feeling is grossly intensified by the consumption of alcohol. Can you talk about more what you meant by this and how you feel like alcohol kind of influences our desires? This is hilarious because I'm horrendously hungover. And obviously yesterday I got a little bit tipsy and my crush. I have this thing where if I have a crush... I want to like you so much that you're unattainable. But I also want to be adored. I'm a massive oxymoron. It doesn't make any sense. I want to be loved by the person that I'm obsessed with, but I also don't want them to notice me at all. Because I think once they notice me and they like me back, then it kills like it kills all the allure. And I even I think I tweeted this the other day and I was reading it and I was like, oh my God, Lauren, you like you need to go to back therapy. That is just obscene. Basically means I want to be obsessed with my crush and I don't want him to know that I'm obsessed with him because it's like a fun little game for me. But then when I drink, I, I'm like, no, he has to know that I'm in love with him. And so it kind of breaks that spell. It definitely gives us the courage to be like, hey, shoot your shot, slide into the DMs. <laughs> and do, please do, because I tell you, 90% of the time that shot lands. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That just that just is giving me so much confidence because I'm just like, I'm tipsy, but I'm still not going to shoot my shot. I'm too scared. I kind of like connected to what you said about the allure changes when mm-hmm. you feel like the crush is attainable because you don't want to be disappointed. No. Let me go to bed at night thinking of this person like in all these wild scenarios, like our wedding day, our first holiday. And then just don't ruin it. This is my life. This is my dream. This is my world. You just exist. And I'm just using you as a pawn in my imagination. But then once you start talking to me and you ruin something, then I'm just like, oh, you're just not what I envisioned. You're not going on the script. (laughs) Crushes are cool, though. I love a crush. I love a good crush. So do I. 
So kind of to switch gears a little bit. So you go into detail about how your father made you feel about your parents growing up and how that affected your relationship. How do you think parents kind of shape our desires, how they have influence on how we see ourselves as desirable, but also what we see as desirable? This one, I think, is a really tricky one because I think the relationship I have with my dad or the non-existent relationship I have with my dad has definitely affected my romantic relationships. On the flip side with my mom, I'm really close with my mom and I've only seen healthy relationships. It's like a very weird middle ground for me where I don't have the same like loving heart as my mom. Then I'm also maybe not the same as my, I don't, maybe I am the same as my dad. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> when I was writing, I realized how many of like the things that happened in my childhood and my teenhood kind of affected the way that I view relationships growing up. And I think it was probably the most eye-opening thing while writing. So I was just like, oh, damn, like, so this is, this is where it came up from. It was like, I was unlocking my own trauma. And it's interesting to think that that a lot of that came from my parents and seeing how they conducted their own relationships. Right. I definitely connect to that. And that's definitely mirrored my own experience with my parents. So I definitely feel you on that. I'm still working with my therapist on all of that because I was like, daddy issues, I know, but I have mommy issues too. Yeah, when you unlock those, you're like, like, where the hell did this come from? Because daddy issues, I didn't know I had that. I've seen my track record. I know. But on the flip side, lost, lost and confused. Exactly. But speaking about childhood, I was like taken way back when you were talking about MySpace. I remember like being up to 3 a.m. talking to my crush at the time. Then he became my boyfriend because we would stay up talking on MySpace till 3 a.m. I wasn't familiar with the other social media. When I started using the internet, it was like dial-up speed. but Everyone was already migrating from AOL to MSN and I was still on AOL. I shouldn't be outing myself. I was delayed. Okay. We didn't have the internet for a while. <laughs> yeah, my mom wouldn't allow us on the internet until I was like in eighth grade. It was probably a good thing that it was delayed because the internet was just an absolute mess when we were growing up. So how do you think social media, both in our formative years and as millennials now, affects what we see as desirable? I wrote about this, actually. I take a lot of breaks from social media because I don't like the way that it makes me feel about myself. Like. When I was first on social media, I was following like a load of models because I work in fashion and I'm obsessed with their style and also like the shows that they do and stuff. But I got to a point where it was like I was following only models and influencers and just feeling like crap about myself every day. And I was like, why am I allowing an app on my phone to make me feel shitty about myself? And I do honestly wonder how kids are are growing up with only seeing those images, because at least when we were growing up, we could just like throw the magazine away or like turn off the TV and then go outside and play football or something. Whereas now it's like every single place. And I I really do thank God that I'm more secure in myself now and so that I care less. I follow sad political things and meme pages on Instagram because it's all balance. So kind of like translating to like dating apps, their appeal is we receive a lot of instant gratification through that convenience Mm. just swiping left or right with the ease of swiping do you think that we've become addicted to feeling desire now that it's so easy I literally only use tinder now to see when people like me maybe I'll go on a date but out of the 60 people I've swiped I maybe go on one 
because I just really enjoy the fact when it has like a little reward, like, oh, this person likes you back. And it's like, oh my God, I'm hot, you know? Like, <laughs> whereas other apps like Hinge make me feel terrible about myself because like the caliber of people that are liking me, I'm like, is this my dating pool? Like the instant gratification that I get on apps like Tinder, chef's kiss. I love it. I love it. It's my junk. That's the highs in Love One and Other Highs. Just something about, oh, I've got like this many amount of matches. Because if you're walking down the street, it's not like you can put a measurable number onto how many people find you attractive. But with Tinder, you can get that number. That's why we're addicted yeah. to it, right? Like when you go on holiday and you always like dress to the nines because you're on holiday, you're like, I'm out. And then you get compliments all the time. You're just like, oh my God, am I hot in another, another country? Like, I love this. That's the feeling I get when I'm on apps like Tinder. I very rarely take them seriously unless I'm like traveling somewhere and I need recommendations. It's easy. I'll just go with the dude. It'll show me around. It's fine. Right. Your chapter on self-discovery was like everything. How do you think knowing yourself and self-love play a role in our desires? To be honest, that whole self-discovery thing has really changed my life and the way that I date because I'm like, well, I love myself and you're not loving me the way that I love myself. So I don't want to do this. And I think that that probably will lead me to be single for the rest of my life because I just don't want to take any shit because when I am on my own, I feel like the hottest bitch in the world. I could be rolling out on the street in my bonnet and like a house t-shirt and I'm like, I'm the shit. Whereas when I was in some relationships, I maybe didn't as much. I viewed myself as desirable in a different way. I was like, I'm desirable for my partner or for the person that I'm dating as opposed to how I felt about myself individually. So like even in writing that, I was like, oh my God, like, damn, like I've come so far. I fucking love myself. Like, this is great. I definitely see myself as hotter in different, in different ways. Whereas before it was like, okay, I'm hot when I'm dressed up. You know, now I'm like, no, I've had a good, I've got a good eyebrow day. I look hot today. I love it. That's probably why I'm still single. It's like, cause my standards for myself are so yeah. high that like, how am I going to find somebody to meet those standards? Right. Nobody does. I was talking to my stepdad about this and he was like, why haven't you got a boyfriend? I was like, they're just not worth it. Another thing about the crush thing, if I have a crush and he reciprocates it and then he doesn't live up to my fantasy, I'm just like, you could have just stayed a crush. You could have just stayed in my imagination and we both would have been happy and there would have been no, no crossover. We both just living our best lives. Now you've ruined it. You've ruined it for both of us. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So this is a book club podcast. So I have to ask, what are you currently reading? This is a funny one, actually, because I found a book that my ex gifted me when we were very, very serious. And it's called How to Think More About Sex. And I was like, oh, all right. You know, when you like when you're like messing your room up, trying to clean it. And I just found this book and I sat down and I started reading it. And I was like, oh, my God, this is so interesting. It's so eye opening about the ways that we talk about sex and the ways that we have sex. Thanks so much for joining us in this conversation. Where can people find you on the Internet? Um, at I am not a writer on Instagram with three R's and that's pretty much it thank you so much for again for joining us and thank you um, for having go get her book love wine other highs thank you thank you so much in Send Her Back and Other Stories, Munashe Kaseke offers an awfully intimate, fresh telling of the immigrant Black woman experience in the United States equally awash with a myriad of challenges as well as the joys of exploring a new world with sumptuous candor, her complicated, often tangled female Zimbabwean protagonists navigate issues of identity, microaggressions, and sexism in vibrant and indelible settings, and at times, a tense political climate in the U.S. 
Yet again, these are not only stories of overcoming. They're also marked by characters who've risen to the top of their professional fields, seized the American dream, and who traveled the world in glee. Kaseke peels back on the inner wranglings of characters caught between two worlds, be it by stories of dating outside one's culture and race, or failing to assimilate upon returning home after spending time abroad. Uncanny, hilarious, witty, gripping, send her back and other stories dazzles, leaving you newly awakened to the world we live in. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for brownie points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. A well-read woman is a dangerous creature.